Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. My name is Erica Sanderson, and this is the Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Hello, and welcome to Season 11 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. Today's episode is number 1118, and we'll be presenting a story written for us by TWL alum author, the brilliant Paul Michael Anderson, entitled The Simple Lives Offered at Rest Stops. If you haven't already, you should grab a copy of his amazing collection of stories, Everything Will Be All Right in the End, Apocalypse Songs. Now, before we start with today's story, a sincere thank you to those of you supporting the show on Patreon. You truly make the show possible. It's because of your support that I can continue to pay the very talented authors, voice actors, composers, and artists. Simply, it's your support that allows us to make sure those who contribute to the show don't work for free. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing you're a part of making the show possible, you get fun rewards, like ad-free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support, even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Lastly, a huge thank you to those of you who have taken the time to leave a five-star rating and share a review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Those reviews really mean a lot to all of us who create the show, and they help the show grow and help other listeners find us by increasing visibility in Apple Podcasts and other platforms. If you haven't already, we'd really appreciate you taking a few minutes to leave a five-star rating and write a quick review in Apple Podcasts. Today's Dark Tale is told by Heather Thomas, accompanied by a custom score by Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Now, let's head into a dark world where nothing is quite what it seems, with the simple lives offered at rest stops. The Simple Lives Offered at Rest Stops by Paul Michael Anderson Narrated by Heather Thomas They watch the warehouse burn, making sure everyone inside is dead. They don't talk. Wood smoke and oil and a thousand other scents, some of them meat, hang in the air, only partially pushed back by the electronic cigarettes the men smoke. They keep the lights of the emergency vehicles running, a few fire trucks so the fire doesn't spread, a handful of modified black SUVs to keep looky-loos away. When the structure collapses and the fire has been reduced to fits and starts, they leave. They'll take tomorrow off 
Only one day, though. The struggle continues. After they're gone, a figure cuts through the industrial wasteland, avoiding the CCTV cameras affixed to every street lamp and building corner. The figure, black in the sputtering afterglow, stands as close as it can without being burned. It says a single thing, softly, in a feminine voice. Eddie, you fucking idiot. I told you. Holly Grinwald jogged to the top of the last hill before Route 94 descended into town and saw old Maggie Breet at the bottom, crouched in front of her mailbox, her gypsy skirt puddled in the shoulder grit. The hell? She muttered, but couldn't hear herself over the mod pop flowing from her wireless buds. Something about Maddie's posture plucked at the edges of Holly's thoughts, the way nervous fingers plucked at loose fabric. She jogging down the hill, but her rhythm was gone. She was exquisitely aware of her own limbs flailing about, her heart stuttering in her chest. The sweat on her brow felt oily, something to be washed off immediately. She ran under the thick canopy of trees growing along the highway in the shade, still holding the night's chill. Made her shiver. Maddie's head whipped around as Holly approached, and, for an instant... Maddie's gray-blue eyes were hard and piercing, so at odds with her plumped and lined face. Holly skidded to a stop. Maddie's mouth moved, and for a moment all Holly could do was watch the wrinkles bracketing the woman's mouth deepen and expand before she realized Maddie was talking to her. She fumbled with the pod in the waistband of her shorts, cutting the music. I'm sorry, Maddie, what? Just said good morning is all. Oh. Maddie smiled, vanishing the hard stare so completely, a part of Holly wanted to believe she'd imagined it. I heard you got into the academy. That right? Holly smiled back. In August. Got my room and sparring assignments and a list of supplies last week. Maddie nodded. And did Holly see that hard sheen creeping back into Maddie's gaze? You'll fit in there. You're a sharp one, Holly Grunwald. Have you known anyone who's gone into the academy? She asked. Or become agents? One or two, Maddie said, turning back to the mailbox post. Former students, she added, almost as an afterthought. Holly leaned in to look at the post. About six inches up from the base, someone had gouged out a rough, lopsided circle. Five arrows originated from the center, pointed down. What happened? She asked. Graffiti, the older woman said. It looks kind of like... Like one of those demented smiley faces I've seen on kids' boards. Maddie finished. Holly frowned. It did kind of look like one of those extreme smileys. Her younger brother had one on his board, had used his own account on Amazon to get it. But it reminded her of something else. The connection wouldn't come through. Yeah, she said. I guess. Thought so too, Maddie said. She reached up and grasped her mailbox with her gloved hands. Back up a bit, in case I fall. Holly stepped back and Maddie did an awkward pull-up. The sleeves of her gypsy dress fell to reveal tendons standing out like guy cables. On your way to town? Maddie asked, when she was more or less straight. Oh! Holly said as if goosed. Yes! I mean, I was jogging there anyway. But have you heard? They caught some smears. Maddie blinked. What? How? When? Last night, Holly said. It was on my feed this morning. Isn't that amazing? In a little town like Nicasio? Did those smear punks really think they could get to the Canadian Wall without someone noticing? 
What happened? Maddie asked, hand on the mailbox, as if studying herself. They broke into Samuel's library, set off the alarm. Holly shook her head. God, they're stupid. The police phoned them? Holly nodded. Uh-huh. And called the state as soon as they were jugged. They got lucky then. Who? The smears. How often do we hear a bunch of antis getting blown away by the public? Maddie smiled. Holly didn't recoil, though she wanted to. Close-lipped and paired with Maddie's suddenly hard eyes, it looked like nothing like the smile a few moments before. I'll let you go then, so you can get all the last gossip. She glanced down at the post. I'll probably mosey on down there later myself. Holly watched her begin the slow stroll up her front walk to the porch, hands slightly out and legs stiff from arthritis, and it wasn't until Maddie was nearly to her porch steps that it hit Holly. Maddie had crouched in front of her mailbox, the way she'd seen that new young guy down at Marlowe's auto body crouch in front of vehicles when inspecting front ends. What old woman can squat like that? Her knees were almost to her gosh darn ears. But... Watching the old woman toddle along now, she also thought, Every old person has good moments, then pay for it later, like Maddie's doing now by the looks. Still, something about that didn't rest comfortably in her head. She glanced down at the graffiti, the smiley that looked like something else, then put the buds back in her ears, pressed play on her pod, and started jogging towards town again. But she kept glancing back at Maddie's house, as if expecting to see Maddie watching with that closed smile and hard eyes. It was only when she went around the next curve, cutting the house from view, that she felt the lightning in her chest. The woman waited at her porch steps until the sound of Holly's jogging faded, then turned and walked back towards the mailbox with an easier gait than Holly had seen. She glanced down the road in the direction Holly had gone. Holly Grunwald, latest acquisition of the Academy. Holly Grunwald. He used to squeal when given first pixies off the trick-or-treat tray during Halloween, or yawned loudly when the book chosen for little tyke tale-telling at Samuel's wasn't to her liking. Holly Grunwald, who wanted to become, of course, an agent. You'll make a delightful little fascist, the woman who called herself Maddie Breet muttered. Her eyes dropped to the mailbox post in its little tag, a circle and five arrows pointing down. Five points on the compass, she said, and they all point south. She paused. Fuck. She glanced at the sky but couldn't see any surveillance drones not from this angle and not this low. Besides, if there were any, and this close to the wall, common sense said there were. What would it pick up? An old woman talking to herself? An old woman who, if they happened to check, was a widower and an art teacher and, therefore by definition, would be eccentric and talk to herself? The tag, the circle and arrows, pulled at her eyes. A part of her wanted to call it a sigil, a calling card from one wanderer to another, but she stopped herself. You're all dead, she whispered, so low it was barely audible. The prosthetics on her face, plumping it up, aging it, itched suddenly. I watched you burn. The tag told her otherwise, but it couldn't be actual, authentic smears. The tag called her a liar. The tag's existence, the tag's placement on her goddamn mailbox, mocked her. She looked at the forest across the highway. There were no roads through it. Not only had she chosen a town without easy access over the wall, but she'd chosen one off any physical or mental map an anti would know. And she'd hiked those woods. For years. But I've been out of the game so long, 
she breathed. I wouldn't even know the rules now, would I? She turned back to the house. Bad enough there were smears in Nicasio. Bad enough they'd tagged her house. But Holly Grunwald had seen the sigil on Maddie Breed's property. And had seen something on Maddie's face that had made her recoil. Did you see them when you came into town this morning? Arnie Cunningham asked, accepting her chip card. The agents, I mean. You saw the whole thing on your feed this morning, right? Maddie cut her eyes away from the hardware store's display windows, looking out across the parking lot and First Street beyond, and back up to Arnie behind the counter. I keep it tuned to the nature feed usually, but I saw Holly Grunwald this morning. She filled me in. Arnie turned toward the old-fashioned cash register and the moderately more modern chip modem it was hooked to. He fed her card into a small cube the size of a ring box and a light flickered green. A few of them took shots at the police. Everyone okay? Arnie flapped a meaty hand. Oh, I heard Randy Arlington got some road rash because he hit the deck. And there's some damage at the library, but that's all. Those kids can't shoot for shit, thank God. Still. The chip cube's green light had gone out. He handed the card back to Maddie. It makes you wonder. I mean, what makes kids like that? She glanced outside again. David, Arnie's grandson, pushed a cart full of gravel bags and 4 by 4s to her Subaru. Why are the agents still around if they got him? Arnie shrugged, leaning on the counter. Probably trying to see if there's anyone they hadn't caught. They scattered like the wind when the cops showed, took off into the woods behind Russie Jeffrey's elementary, and got lost. Tell you the truth, Richie Bragg told me that when the cops found them, they were more than ready to go. All the killer knocked right out of them. He looked down at his hands and shook his head. Still, there shouldn't be any killer in them, right? I mean, those kids? Why are they so against everything we tried to do for them? They're always cold and hungry and angry. Why? This is a good life. They don't see it that way, apparently. Ah, hell, I get it. Kids rebel. Back when I was a teen, it felt like everything was on the table. Drinking and drugs and... Ugh. A quick glance at her. One night stands. It was fun and rebellious. He leaned on the counter. But I grew up. It probably helps that two of those three things get you executed now, she thought. I grew up, Arnie repeated. She wondered if she was the first recipient of this speech. Probably not. And when the rev happened, everything was so clear. And we, I mean the country... Remembered what truly matters. After that, I just wanted a simple life. A place to work with my hands, raise a family, make the land my own, you know? He looked outside. But not these kids. Rebellion is shooting at the cops and terrorizing folks and going against the law in ways people like you and me? He waved a hand between her and him. Never would have dreamed of. What must their parents think? Maybe they're dead? God forgive me. That might almost be better. They can all be like Holly Grinwald, she said. Thanks, Arnie. He raised a hand. Sure thing, Maddie. Don't overdo it today, okay? We're too old for too much work. When that's true, I'll be dead, she said, and stepped out into the morning air on his laughter. David waited beside her Subaru. You need help with this, Mrs. Breet? I'm sure Gramps wouldn't mind. And leave him no one to talk to? She asked. Bite your tongue, David Cunningham. David grimaced but said nothing. He was a good boy. She fumbled her car fob out of her purse and was just raising it when the black SUV turned off main and started down first. To her credit, she didn't freeze, 
didn't even hesitate enough for David, who'd also seen the SUV, to notice. There they are, David muttered. Holly's probably fangirling right now. She hit the button and the Subaru's locks chunked. David raised the hatchback and turned to the cart. When the SUV hit the turn signal and turned into the lot, she tried to feel surprise and couldn't. She dropped her fob back in her purse and thought, Fucking Holly Grunwald. They pulled into the space one over from the Subaru and killed the engine. David, holding a bag of gravel, froze as three men, dressed identically with black suits and sunglasses, climbed out. The driver was older than the others, who could have passed for anonymous male models number one and two. His hair was fairer, receding into a widow's peak, and his face more angular. He stepped forward while the male models hung back, hands folded in front of their open suit jackets. Ms. Breit? The driver asked. He had an eastern city accent she hadn't heard in fifteen years. Mrs. Breit? She corrected. And you are? The driver reached into his open jacket and removed a black leather billfold. He opened it and held it out, revealing the platinum triangular badge of the state and his photo ID. Without the glasses, the driver had pale blue eyes that were somehow simultaneously mild and piercing. Agent Ament, ma'am, he said, closing the billfold. We learned that you were the subject of some graffiti last night? Yes. She kept her voice even and mildly curious. It took some effort. We think your graffiti and the incident last night. Those antis being captured, you mean? Ament's lips puckered for a moment. People like him weren't used to being interrupted. Truthfully, around agents, folks typically went by that old child's rule of only speaking when spoken to. She couldn't, though. She was Maddie Breet. Eccentric, yes. A widow, yes. But also a former teacher used to taking charge of any Q&A session, regardless of the situation. She couldn't let 15 years of careful construction go just because, like most people, she wanted to shut up so he'd leave more quickly. Yes, he said, slower than before. Before he could go on, she asked, what does my graffiti have to do with those smear kids, Agent Amat? Based on what we've heard and what we've seen, we believe that your graffiti might be the smear logo. Have you seen anything? Heard anything? Nothing more than usual, she said. I live right on the main road, so... Yes, outside of town and the housing plans, Amant interrupted. They gazed at each other for what felt like much longer than it probably was. After thirty years teaching children, I'm allowed a little quiet, she said finally. He opened his mouth and she overrode him. Which means any irregular noise around the home place catches my attention quickly. Aside from that graffiti, I've noticed nothing. But you didn't notice the graffiti being done? Ament asked. That couldn't have been done silently. He was taller than her by a good foot and looked down at her now. Tell me the truth, his body language said. I know you're lying, so tell me the truth. I'm almost 70, Sunny Jim, she said, putting an edge in her voice. And I go to bed early. Also, I do live on the main drag, as we used to say. It's not like whoever could have hung around to carve for long, correct? I thought it looked like a smiley. I only just heard of those anti-kids this morning, from a girl named Holly Grunwald. You might have spoken to her? Immense shoulders twitched, a slight adjust. And I haven't noticed anything else strange. She sighed, then cocked her head at the agent. Is there anything else? Agent Amat. I have a bad hip and it's starting to sing, and I have to replace my post, so... 
Ament held his posture for another moment and then he shifted somehow, became smaller. We're still investigating, so if you see something or remember something, he pulled out a card and offered it. Please call immediately. She took it. I'll do so, Agent Amat. Good morning, then, he said, then headed back to the SUV. The other two agents followed. The SUV started and pulled away. David still stood holding the bag of gravel, frozen. Close your mouth, David, she said. You'll draw flies. She looked at Ament's card. A single phone number was written across its face in black type. No name, no identification. How very men in black, she muttered. Tell me the truth, his posture had said. I know you're lying, so tell me the truth. She realized he hadn't smiled once during the entire exchange. Her thoughts wanted to linger on Agent Ament and the captured smears, but replacing the posts pushed them out. Even when she wasn't pretending to be someone approaching 70, it was still a hard job to complete on her own made harder by the constant stopping of cars passing by on Route 94, and took her the rest of the morning. She shoved her loaded wheelbarrow in the shed. Twin knobs of heat pulsed in her hips, and the center of her spine ached from bending too much for too long. Sweat coated her like a diving suit. The prosthetic on her forehead itched fiercely. She shut the shed's wide door and locked it. The feed above her sink popped on as she entered the kitchen, tuned to a nature special with a state news chiron scrolling across the bottom edge. A mother deer showed its baby how to walk while tinkling piano played. She passed through the kitchen, the feed popping off as soon as its sensors noticed her absence, and into the hall. She stopped in the foyer, looking at the mailbox through one of the narrow windows that bookended her door. She thought she'd done a fair job. Her eyes moved from the post, ticked off the lush shrubbery that bordered the property, the parallel box gardens along her wall, a splash of colors. She couldn't have done any of this without Arnie Cunningham, who she had befriended almost immediately after moving here. It was something she'd known innately. In order to get by, you had to become a part of things. Another thread in the fabric. She leaned her forehead against the window pane. She could feel the glue of the prosthetics on her face, puffing her cheeks, changing the shape of her brow, changing who she really was. If she walked into Arnie's store right now without her prosthetics, looking like the 40-something she really was, would he... God damn it, she whispered. I was supposed to stop thinking this 15 years ago. The doorbell rang and she shuffled out of the kitchen in her bathrobe, holding a cup of coffee with one hand and patting at the freshly applied prosthetics with the other. Too early for this, but thank God she'd put on her prosthetics first thing. It'd been a habit she'd been happy to lose after the town had accepted her. Her complexion did not appreciate being covered with itchy glue and latex, but one she'd have to reacquire while agents were in town. She was not fucking around. She glimpsed the hulking black shape through the side windows, frowned, opened the door, and went eye to eye with the black pistol. You took our sign down, Penny, the kid aiming the gun said, and she snapped her eyes away. It was harder to do than she wanted to admit. The kid was pale, so pale he glowed in the early morning light, and his hair was the color of corn silk, but dirty. She saw crumbs of dirt and leaves. He looked familiar, but she couldn't see how. He'd probably still been in diapers when she came to Nicasio. The kid wore black. Because, of course he did. The kid was a smear. They hadn't changed much, apparently. Step back, Penny, the kid said. I'm feeling a little exposed out on your stoop. Don't want that jogging chick to see me, do you? 
he was watching yesterday. She thought, backing up. Jesus. The kid stepped inside and closed the door behind him. He pawed for the deadbolt and the snap of it made the kid grin. This scare you, Penny? He asked. His smile didn't reach his eyes. Should it? She asked, not bothering with the Maddie Breet voice, which was slower, softer on the R sounds, and more drawled. Depends on how you act in the next few minutes, Penny. That's not my name. The grin widened, but the eyes got harder. I know, Penny. But I believe in laying things bare, Penny. He cocked his head. Or isn't that your real name either, Penny Lissandra? My mom was never sure. His head canted that way. She could see a vein in his neck throbbing. It scared her, worked its way under her nerves more than the gun, and she felt a spark of anger. Everything of the past 24 hours was this guy's fault, and goddammit, she would not be afraid of him. In Nicasio, my name's Maddie Breet, she said. Call me that. I don't answer to any other name. He smiled thinly. Kitchen, comrade. We'll chat over hot cups of joe. I'm dying for one. She wanted to bash his oh-so-familiar face in with her mug, take his gun, and then shoot him. She wanted him to not be here. Instead, she turned and started down the hall towards the kitchen. You're McCready's kid, she said, watching him. His gun rested on the table and his hands rested on the gun, but it wasn't aimed at her. She leaned against the counter. He'd told her to sit, but she'd ignored him, and he didn't tell her again. She'd noted that. He looked up from his coffee. What? McCready, she repeated. I was wondering who you reminded me of. She studied his face. You didn't know your dad, did you? That hard look came back. My mom said he died in the fire, he said. He eyed her. You look older than I know you are. Is small town life that hard? Prosthetics, she said. And my hair started graying in my mid-twenties. He nodded, but didn't push the subject. Something else, she noted. How did you find me? She asked. As far as the records know, I'm dead. The records are wrong, McCready said. There weren't enough bodies in the fire. Enough of the right bodies, anyway. A friend of a friend, though, said there were when everything was filed. So everyone knew I was alive from the jump. Not that it mattered. For ten years, there weren't any smears. Not enough to make any difference. When we got our act together, my mom and some other people, they found you. Don't ask me how. I was twelve at the time. What's the game plan, then? She asked. Fill me in on all the fun smear activities I've missed? Kill me? What? Laying low. We didn't expect any resistance when we got here. Then you're dumber than I remember, she thought. Why tag my house? A shrug. The thinking was, it isn't easy getting up here from the corridor. Who would have thought that the less people watching, the harder traveling would be? Groups are going to need a place to rest up before going to the wall. And I become... what? A rest stop for antis? He looked at her levelly. There's been a lot of talk over the years about the fire. About how you were able to survive something that wiped everyone else out. Is there anyone else? She asked. I don't need two or three people dropping in. It's going to be hard enough with you here. They know you tagged my house. He blinked at that. And a muscle in her forearm twitched. She wanted to hurl her mug at his head. He was a toddler playing with matches, never understanding that say hey and by the way 
matches burn you. They're sticking around, she went on, waiting to see if anyone comes out of the woodwork. Would any of your friends talk? He shook his head. No, we trained on that. Bet you trained on how to avoid capture, too. Color grew on his cheeks. There's no one else here, he said, but he blinked twice, like he'd gotten a dust mote in his eye. Why Nicasio? There isn't an easy access point on the wall here. That's why I came. I knew it'd be a no-go if another anti-group rose up on the East Coast. He leaned back in his seat. You've been out of the game, Penny. My name's Maddie, asshole. He grinned hard. I know. Maddie Breet, late 60s, retired teacher, widowed, taught in the Baltimore subsection of the corridor. He nodded. Immaculate paperwork, by the way. Too bad your father never learned it. He might still be alive. He stared at her, the whites too big in his eyes, and then the gun was up and he was too, chair legs squeaking against the faded hardwood. She stared at him over the gun. Think about what you're doing, Sonny Jim, she said softly. You misunderstand your situation. With the state here, you're a bug in a jar. That's what my group never learned, and it doesn't seem your group has either. With the state, you have to learn your boundaries and how to move within them. Your boundaries are super small right now. So yeah, you have me. But I also have you. They stared at each other for a five count. A fawn cried out on her feed. Finally, McCready lowered his gun. Nicasio's a prime spot, he said, and his voice shook. We've finally managed to make contact with allies on the other side, including employees of the ministry that maintains the wall. The section behind Nicasio? He nodded over her shoulder. Due for maintenance next spring. But until then, there are massive gaps in razor wire and cameras. Weak mortaring and trees that need pruned? We can get over that. He shrugged his shoulders in a, well, there you have it move. And then it happens. We can get together finally with the other four anti-state groups. Five points on the compass, and they all aim south. Point south. What? The saying goes, five points on the compass and they all point south. It was something Eddie, the guy who founded the Smears, came up with when we made our initial contacts with the group in the Midwest and West Coast. She sighed. Fine. You can lay low here, but you are not to be out in daylight. They've probably upped drone routes. You want to forget that the outdoors exists. I'll go about my daily life. He opened his mouth and she raised her eyebrows. This isn't a negotiation, Sonny Jim. This is a prefix. Rules of the road. You want to survive and go live your dumbass revolution? Give it a week. Keep your head down. And you'll get to Canada. Understand? He considered her. Did you renege, Maddie? How did you survive that fire? By knowing which way the wind blew, she said. I always had a backup plan. I believed in us, but I couldn't do much dead. You came here and gave up. I came here and stayed alive. Eddie and your father and the others and their hangers-on didn't know fuck all. They all thought they were chafe fucking Guevara. But we were all just a bunch of losers who'd read too much on the net before it became state-coded. They thought their ideas beat the state's bullets. The rally that night was the equivalent of shooting fireworks off the roof. I knew the state would come, so I ran. She sipped her coffee. There's a room upstairs. Door closed. It's a guest bedroom. 
You can sack out there. Close the blinds. McCready opened his mouth, closed it, opened it again. She waited. Finally, he shook his head and walked back down the hall. When she heard his footfalls on the steps, the shakes took over. She managed to put her mug on the counter before she spilled it, then hugged herself. She closed her eyes, focusing on taking deep breaths. You are dead, McCready's eyes had said. No mistake. Behind the resentment and exhaustion and the anger that she remembered from her own days as a smear. God, what a stupid fucking name. There had been an expression of clear superiority. Whatever else was going on with McCready, he knew one thing. He was living in all the ways that she wasn't. Bullshit, she muttered, hugging herself tighter. She thought of him upstairs, crashing out, a floating tumor in the body of her house. Her eyes snapped to the magnetized knife strips on the wall. It'd be easy. She'd unnerved him, but he didn't expect anything from her. Not some old woman. She bared her teeth and turned away. She looked through the window into her backyard, a rectangle of order cut into the furry wilderness of the northern New York woods. Her wide, squat shed, her raised gardens and manicured trees. She'd done this over the years. She had. Her order. Her body republic. And upstairs, a tumor. She shook herself. For Christ's sake, she muttered, and tried to think of what her day was supposed to be before McCready sauntered along. The library. God knew what kind of help they'd need, but it'd be good to get away. Like replacing the post yesterday, the sheer act of working would calm her. She unclasped herself and leaned against the counter, hanging her head. Shit, she said. When she pulled her hatchback into her driveway, the sunlight was slipping into the treetops, intertwined branches laying thick shadows across her house, like the braiding of a net. And it was all quite beautiful, but she didn't notice any of it because of the way Holly Grunwald had stopped to turn and look at her. She set the Subaru's brake, but didn't immediately kill the engine. Its hum matched the frequency of the curling, sparking ball of yellow anxiety in her gut. Seeing Holly in her mind's eye, Holly in a window seat in Ladie's restaurant, turning as Maddie drove past, a worry line in the center of that young brow of hers. And who was that Holly's talking to? Why, it's David, Arnie's grandson. What a coincidence. Not that it'd been any better at the library. The appraising looks amongst the librarians whenever she'd passed, the soft conversations between the other elderly volunteers when she was out of eyesight, but not earshot. Her eyes fell to the gear shift and, oh lord, it'd be so easy to drop it into reverse and drive away. She'd done it before, and it wasn't like Maddie Breet was her only paper identity. Once her mother had shown her how, she'd spent her teen years stockpiling identities, like a squirrel stockpiling for winter. But the game had changed while she'd been gone. It was like turning down a well-known but ill-traveled road. Oh, I'm sorry, a road? Only to discover, while you were away, construction and time had worn away all the old markers and landmarks, plopped down new destinations and exits. It was like opening an old map and finding only new routes printed on it. It was still the state versus the anti-state. That vague umbrella term for various groups, but different. The state had become Holly Grunwald. Sharp and cruel and quick on the change-up. Refined to the point of purity, of archetype. The anti-state had become McCready. Soft and slow and stupid and comfortable. Unable to adapt. She bared her teeth at her steering wheel a keening, frustrated grunt escaping her. Something wooden clacked outside, like a thick branch snapping, but not quite, and her head snapped up. Huh? She saw McCready, gun in hand, 
walking towards the house from the backyard. He went inside, letting the screen door thwack shut behind him. The fuck is he doing? She said. She killed the engine and climbed out, cutting across the flagstone path so she could see down the backyard. Tree branches swayed in a breeze. The sun was the soft yellow gold of late afternoon. Nothing else. Not quite, though. Looking down the length of her yard, something was off. But it was too small, or too blatantly obvious, for her to see. It tugged at the back of her mind like the name of an old song stuck in her head. Something she knew, but she couldn't recall. Damn it, she muttered, and went up the wooden steps to the kitchen door. What the fuck were you doing outside? She demanded as she threw open the door. McCready stood at the sink, washing his hands, his gun on the counter next to him. He shut off the water and snagged the dish towel off the oven door handle. What? he asked, drying his hands. She dropped her purse onto the kitchen table with a thump. The fuck did I tell you? You stay inside until this cools down. He grinned indulgently, the way a kid does when his grandmother's losing her shit over something completely inconsequential. You're such a pill, Penny, Eddie would say whenever she'd voice an objection to something, and he and Jack and Matt and Brendan and all the rest would yuck it up. Ah, look at Penny being such a girl, so safe, before ignoring everything she'd said and doing the plans their way. All right, I'm sorry, McCready said, still smiling. Won't happen again. She ground her teeth together. It won't matter in a few hours if a drone snapped your image. She shook her head. Jesus Christ, how in the hell did any of you survive as long as you did? He paused mid-dry. His voice gained an edge. We got along all right. Until you got overwhelmed by a bunch of podunk cops who otherwise spend their nights playing cards. He frowned. He might have been a statue. It wasn't like that. She didn't have to needle him, but she couldn't stop herself. A part of it was sheer anger that people who carried the name of her group were so stunningly stupid. But an equally large part of it had to do with his default expression of dismissal which she could still see the ghost of behind that sulking face of his. You don't matter, that expression said. You're an old and useless woman, and I know better. It was the same expression on Agent Ament's face, and Holly Grunwald's. It wasn't like that, she mocked. But your group is dead and your glorious plans to sing Old Canada got fucked sideways, Freddy. You're stuck in an old spinster's house because one of you got lucky once on a computer and found me out. He tossed the towel aside onto his gun. Watch it. Or you'll do what? She snapped. You have no power here. You're trapped, dipshit. I thought revolutionaries were supposed to be smart. You wouldn't know, he said, since you're not one. I'm alive, she said, which is something neither your friends nor my friends can say, can they? If you call this living, Maddie, he said softly and left the room, his back straight, his arms swinging, a victor leaving the battlefield. When he took the steps, he didn't stomp up them. He didn't slam his bedroom door closed. She let out a breath and willed herself not to start shaking. Her pulse thrummed in her temples. Her eyes fell upon the gun he'd left behind. Because of course he had. Fucking child. She whispered and picked it up, watching the dull black finish absorb the glow of the overhead light. She didn't know make or caliber, although it reminded her of Glocks, guns that had been antiques when she'd been a smear. She'd found the clip release and it shot out the bottom of the grip. She studied the gleaming brass rounds as if hypnotized, then slid it back home. 
hating how satisfying the metallic click was to her ears. She looked out the window. The sun had fallen behind the trees, fading the colors to soft grays. Her shed stood out like a fat ghost in the gloom. She blinked, leaning against the counter to get a closer look. What? The clack she'd heard. The difference she'd noticed but couldn't identify when she'd stepped into her backyard. Her shed was unlocked, the lock itself hanging from the hasp. She'd locked it yesterday. You little prick, she hissed. She straightened, not thinking at all on the surface of her brain. But the engines deep down were running along quite nicely, thank you. She thought of the sigil and the state, Holly Grunwald's appraising expression and Agent Ament's distressful one. She thought of the 15 years she'd invested in Maddie Breet. She went to her purse, a part of her unnerved by how quickly she'd gotten used to carrying a pistol again, as if its weight was made for her hand. We're still investigating, Ament had said, and his card was in the side pocket of her purse. In the end, it was almost anticlimactic. A call answered in the middle of the first ring and a mint's voice on the phone. She thought of the fire. She'd watched it all, far from the detection of the state, hidden in a dark corner, blind to CCTVs. Even with distance, she'd thought she could feel every pulse of heat, hear every collapsing bit of building onto whatever remained of her friends. It was the release of the tension she'd sensed building. Not catharsis, but an idea that the worst was now known, and had now happened. Now everything occurred right in front of her, but it felt distant, as if she watched from behind a feet-thick pane of glass. Even the sound seemed far away, the crushed box clump of agents galumphing into her house and up the stairs the muffled thuds and crashes from the guest bedroom, and the soft way the overhead light in the kitchen flickered with each one, the truck on the highway thrum of shouting from McCready. She stood beside the stairs, arms crossed and hands cupping her elbows, and watched the blue emergency lights of the black SUVs turning silently outside, and tried to feel that closeness she'd felt nearly two decades ago, but couldn't. The tension hung like cigarette smoke. Finally, they came down the steps, four identical agents leading, dragging McCready along. Agent Ament, right behind them, hands in his pockets, his tie impeccable, but his thinning hair must. McCready shot her a look over his shoulder, blind with panic and incomprehension. A needle of disgust prodded her as he passed. Ament watched his colleagues lead McCready out, then turned to her. Sorry about some of the things you heard up there, he said, glancing upwards. She rubbed her elbows. It's all right. He looked at her steadily. Did he say anything to you? She shook her head. No, he was just here when I came home from the library, moving around like he owned the place. Told me he had to hide out for a few days and to be quiet. And he didn't pull a gun, Ament asked. Or a knife? She shook her head again. No, not that I saw. She made a point of peering at him closely. Did you find one? A glance out the door. No. He turned back frowning, and his mask slipped a bit. It took a greater sum of willpower than she wanted to admit not to recoil. His expression of professional empathy slipped and she glimpsed the agent she'd met yesterday. Hard, disbelieving, efficient. His eyes gleamed. Well, you don't have to worry about him now. Tomorrow morning, would you be willing to come down to the police station for a formal debriefing? For our records? Her mind latched onto the way Ament had said him. Of course, I can do it first thing. 
and we might have to come back here, he continued, meeting her eyes. Since we don't know how long he was on the property, we don't know if he stowed anything here. Right now, it was about getting him out. Whatever helps you, she said. Her mouth was numb. We'll leave you to rest then, he said. We can talk tomorrow and you can tell me all about this. His eyes did a rotation as if indicating the entire house before settling on her again. His thin lips quirked into a half smile and maybe it might have been reassuring to others. Holly Grunwald popped immediately to mind, but not her. I know you're lying, his eyes and smile said. And you know, I know, you're going to tell me the truth. I would be happy to, Agent Amant, she said. And she didn't feel so distant and far away anymore. Oh no. He nodded and stepped outside. She watched the agents pile back into their SUVs and then pull silently away, shutting off their blue lights. As she started to close her door, she saw a passing car slow in front of her house. God knew what was being said in town, or on Holly Grunwald's feed. She shut the door, resisting the urge to slam it, bolt it. When she saw the blue lights move on, she turned and walked into the kitchen. She hip-checked her kitchen table, then pulled out the nearest chair and got down on her knees. She worked her calloused fingers into a niche between two boards and pulled. It lost its flush setting and she pried it up. MacReady's gun rested between two metal pipes. Beneath that rested a chip card, wrapped and secured with a Ziploc baggie and rubber band. She pulled the pistol out first, then the chip card. The thumbnail photo on the card was a version of her, but the name wasn't. She sighed, a woman who was neither Maddie Breit nor Penny Lissandra anymore. Fuck, she muttered. Finally, she stood and made her way back to the stairs, taking them two at a time. Zack heard that muffled rattle of the lock leaving the hasp of the shed door and his body stiffened. He wasn't expecting Rick back tonight. He heard the door swing open on its hinges below and risked a peek through a stack of old earthen pots, looked down the loft. The silhouette of a woman stood in the doorway, backlit by the lights of the house. He thought of the owner of the house, but that woman, even when she didn't have to put on a show for the locals, had moved like an old person, hunched back, rounded shoulders, slow gait. Rick said she must be doing something with makeup to make herself appear older, but Zack wasn't sure. She might not be as old as she pretended, but she was still pretty fucking old. Hey. She stage whispered, and it sounded a little like the woman he and Brendan had been watching, but not as rough. I know you're here. It's safe, but not for long. Zack licked his lips, hated himself for doing it, did it again anyway. His body thrummed. They got your friend and they're gonna get us too, the woman went on. So stop fucking around. Zack sat up and wrapped his head hard against the pitch in the shed roof. He winced, crying out, but the woman didn't react. Rick would have yelled at him. She pulled one of her hands out of the front pocket of the hoodie she wore and turned on an LED flashlight. Get down here. Quickly. He wormed his way over the ladder against the side of the loft space and eased himself down. What happened? Where's Rick? Clean up, she said, keeping the flashlight trained on the ladder. What? The state picked him up, she said. Came right to my house. Drone probably snapped a pic of him when he came out to visit you earlier. You knew about that? I'm not an idiot, she said. Turn around. He stood at the base of the ladder, hands still gripping the sides. Too much was happening on top of everything that had already thrown everything into a tailspin before. Rick gone? This woman standing here as big as Billy be damned and talking like she was in charge? Come on, man. 
she said. You're making this look like a bad execution. He turned slowly. In the afterglow of the flashlight, the woman was still old, but not as old. The wrinkles not as chiseled, her face angular without the sagging flesh. Her eyes were harder, too. So, what's happening? He asked, and didn't like the click that wanted to form in his throat. We have to go to the wall tonight, she said. She shook her head. You fucking idiots. You attacked my mailbox and ruined everything. They suspect me, too. Everything's a little too convenient. You just had to be cute, didn't you? It was just in case, Zack said, then made himself stop. It sounded childish and defensive. Yeah, he told me, she said. What's your name? Zack. All right, Zack, she said. What do we have to do to get over the wall tonight? Zack's tongue clung to the roof of his mouth. Um, he said. It's a 20-minute walk, 40 in the dark, I guess. A big-ass tree's basically grown over it, so you can shimmy across and jump. A high jump, though, so you gotta tuck and roll. He eyed her as he said this. Jesus, she might look younger but she'd probably break her damn back. Rick said the jump was something like 20 feet. Then we have to hike northeast to the maintenance station. The Canadians know what's up. Good, she said. Thanks, Zach. She pulled her other hand out of the hoodie, holding a gun. Isn't that Rick's? He started to ask. Uh-huh, she said. He died with an expression of confusion on his face. The woman stepped out of the shed, adjusting the straps to Zack's backpack. Ament had taken McCready's, otherwise she would have been content to leave the kid for Ament to discover whenever he came back here looking for Maddie Breet. But it had camping gear and snack food and a compass. Things she needed now. The night breeze cooled the heat on her cheeks, pulled out the ringing of the shot still in her ears. Her mind wanted to linger on the look on his face as he talked about the jump. That incredulous, you don't think you can do this, do you? Look of the young and male. But she shook it off. Ament wouldn't wait. He'd be right at her door first thing in the morning, if not earlier, if he got something juicy out of McCready. She looked back at her house, the lights inside still blazing, throwing warm yellow rectangles out onto the grass. McCready had called it a rest stop, and she guessed he was right. He'd just been wrong on who the rest stop was for, and for how long one could stay there. She studied her house, felt the wind, thought how glad she was it didn't smell like smoke, and made a memory of it. Five points on the compass, she said. I'm finally doing it, Eddie. As an afterthought, she said, I never reneged. She turned away and hustled across the yard towards the tree line, pulling the flashlight out but keeping it off until she was under the cover of woods. She had to get to the next stop on the road. Thank you for listening to episode 1118 of the Wicked Library. Today's author was Paul Michael Anderson with his dark tale, The Simple Lives Offered at Rest Stops. Today's story was told by Heather Thomas. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I've been your host today. If you'd like to find more of my work, you can check out ninthstory.com, victoriaslift.com, or follow me on Twitter at dfoytek. Our season 11 lead editor and executive producer was Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our producer is Meg Williams. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. 
To find out more about all of today's contributors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. If you'd like to help us continue to bring you our collection of dark tales, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can also help us by leaving a five-star rating and a short review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show, which helps us generate revenue to ensure no one contributing to our show works for free. Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved.